And just like last week, we are in 2 Kings chapter 4, though we're a little further along than we were last week. We finished with verse 28. 2 Kings chapter 4, today we'll start in verse 29 when we get rolling. Today is the third Sunday during which we've studied the story of the Shunammite woman, a woman of great faith, having taken her dead son now and laying him on the bed of the holy man of God. We've learned she was a humble woman, though she was called a great woman when we were introduced to her. She hugged the feet of the man of God, being in despair that her son had died and that perhaps the man of God had deceived her. So she wondered. If you've read the book of Job, you may remember that when Job's children were killed by that whirlwind that collapsed that building they were in, and all but four of his servants were killed, and his livestock were taken away, And finally, when he was afflicted from head to toe with boils, his friends suggested that Job had done something to bring this on himself, that there was some sin in his life that caused this to happen. And we who have read the first chapter of that book know that was not why this happened at all. But God would use all of those things that happened to Job to prove to Satan that God would be glorified in his saints, that he was gracious, especially during times of great affliction. In John chapter 9 and verses 1 through 3, John chapter 9 verses 1 through 3, it says, And as Jesus passed by, He saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. So the question that was asked of Jesus was, Whose fault was it that this boy was born blind? Did he do something wrong or did the parents do something wrong? And Jesus said, that's not the case. And when he said, neither had this man sinned nor his parents, he didn't say, he wasn't telling us that they were sinless people. What he was telling us is that their sin is not what brought this blindness on. The reason the blindness was brought, the reason that the blindness was allowed was that the works of God would be made manifest in this blind young man. So you think about that, you think about Job, you think about this Shunammite woman who had asked God for a child. God gave her one, and now the little boy is dead. The world would say, why did God do this? Why did he allow this? And we sometimes have those questions too. We're not really sure. But Jesus' answer was that the works of God 
should be made manifest in him. And that's the answer I would give you. If you say, Brother Andy, why did this awful thing happen to me or to somebody I love? I don't understand it. Perhaps to a child. Perhaps somebody was born with a condition and we don't understand why that happened other than genetically, perhaps. But in the big picture. And all I can tell you is that it was done that the works of God may be manifest in him. There's something God is going to do or is doing or has done in those situations. So what we have to do is open our eyes, just like in the case of this Shunammite woman, and ask, what is God trying to show us here? And I think that will soften the blow just a little bit, and it will direct our eyes heavenward and off of our own afflictions. And we know our Lord's promise is true. When Jesus said, the boy was born blind, that the works of God may be made manifest in him, we know those words were true. So whether God heals or leaves a person sick, whether he spares a person's life or takes it, he does it that his work may be made manifest. And if nothing else comes of it, we may learn that God is sovereign and he has a greater purpose and we don't always understand it. And that's okay because we can trust him. And you can be sure that in this case, he is going to show himself mighty with this Shunammite woman and her child. Now look at verse 29. We're in Second Kings chapter 4, verse 29. Now at this point, Elisha is speaking. Then he, Elisha, said to Gehazi, Gird up thy loins and take my staff in thine hand, and go thy way. If thou meet any man, salute him not, and if any salute thee, answer him not again, and lay my staff upon the face of the child. Now while this may seem to be a perfectly normal thing to do for a powerful prophet like Elisha, we do not read that God told him to do this. We do not read that he sought the Lord. He just said, here's my staff. Hurry up. Don't stop. Don't talk to anybody. Go to that child as quickly as you can and lay my staff on his face. And we haven't read anything before this about Elisha having or using a staff for that matter, though it would not be uncommon for him because he was a farmer and a rancher. You remember the the last carnal act, if you will, secular act he did, was to take those oxen he was plowing with and to sacrifice them and then to give the meat to the people and to use the wood from those implements as a fire starter. <laughs> so... He probably had a staff, but this is the first time we read about his staff. And because he sent Gehazi to perform this miracle or what he hoped would be a miracle, I asked myself, why would Elisha command this thing on his own? Could God have spoken to him and just not declared those words to us? That's possible. Perhaps Elisha was tired 
And instead of going to this child himself, he just sent Gehazi. I don't know what the reason was, but let's see what happened. Verse 30, and the mother of the child said, now she's speaking to Elisha, as the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And he arose and followed her. Even though Elisha had sent Gehazi, his servant, with the staff hastily to go put it on this child's face, the woman didn't leave. She didn't go with Gehazi. She said, wherever you go, that's where I'm going. If you stay here, I'm going to stay here. And she didn't need to physically go with Gehazi. She just needed to be in agreement with the man of God who, in her estimation, was in agreement with God himself. Last week, we read of a centurion who had a servant who was sick of the palsy. And this centurion said to Jesus, I don't need you to come to the house with me. All I need you to do is speak the word and my servant will be healed. And... That's what Jesus did. So this woman had a similar mindset. She didn't need for Elisha to come to her house. She just said, wherever you are, I'm staying. I'm not leaving. You know, these charlatan so-called faith healers that appear on television and want you to put your hand on the TV or, or on the radio in the old days as they pray or to touch a piece of cloth they anointed and sent to you in the mail. That's foolishness. Or in many cases, they have people come to their, what they call healing meetings, to be physically touched by this false preacher himself or herself in some cases. But like this Shunammite woman, You need to hold the holy man of God, Jesus, by the feet, spiritually speaking. You don't physically hold his feet. But spiritually speaking, that needs to be your attitude. If Jesus isn't going, I'm not going either. I'm staying with Jesus. And if Jesus is not in agreement with your prayer, then it doesn't matter if Benny Hinn agrees with it or not, does it? And by committing herself to the man of God, she moved his heart to follow her to his house. Verse 31, And Gehazi passed on before them and laid the staff upon the face of the child, but there was neither voice nor hearing. Wherefore he went again to meet him and told him, saying, The child is not awaked. So Gehazi beat Elisha and the Shunammite woman to the house. And although he was not, well, he wasn't the holy man of God per se, but he was the servant of the holy man of God. And although he had the staff of the holy man of God, his effort to revive this little boy was not successful. Because it says in verse 31, There was neither voice nor hearing. That means the little boy did not speak or show signs of hearing something 
that Gehazi said or did. Gehazi may have even prayed out loud over this boy or said, in the name of the Lord, arise. You know, the apostles did that. But this negative result here is what makes me wonder if Elisha did this thing on his own, as I suggested earlier, rather than first seeking the Lord. Lord, would you have me to go? Lord, what is your will concerning this child? And perhaps the Lord would have given him a different way to handle this. Now let's read verses 32 and 33 and then make comment on them. And when Elisha was come into the house, behold, the child was dead and laid upon his bed. So he was in the same condition that the the mother left him. He was in the same condition now that Gehazi left him. So Elisha comes into this dead child, verse 33. He went in, therefore, and shut the door upon them twain and prayed unto the Lord. So that means when Elisha went into this room where this little boy was laying dead, it was just Elisha and the little boy. He shut the door. Remember what the woman did? She shut the door when she laid the child on the bed. And seeing the child was still dead, Elisha himself went into the room. The child's mother could not heal him because he sat on her lap until noon and died. Gehazi could not heal him even with Elisha's staff. You would think, boy, if there's anybody's staff in this world at that time that could heal someone, it'd be Elisha's. No, it was just a piece of wood, wasn't it? This situation called for the holy man of God to pray to the Lord. And because it says here he prayed to the Lord, I think it's quite likely that Elisha did not pray to the Lord when he sent Gehazi off with his staff to revive the dead child. At least we do not read that he prayed to the Lord. So I think that's a reasonable presumption at least. But now focus in on this. You have a dead child whom nobody and no thing in this world could revive. And you have Elisha, the holy man of God, and everybody else outside the door. And the door is shut on both of them. And you have Elisha, the holy man of God, praying to the Father. What a wonderful picture of Jesus this is, praying to the Father on behalf of dead sinners. Did you think of that when you read that? Perhaps you did. Listen to this prayer in John chapter 17. This was one of the times where the Lord saw fit to give us a glimpse, to kind of put us in the room with Jesus as he prayed aloud. And we got to read the words. It's a wonderful prayer. In John 17, verses 1 through 3, These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. How about that? Jesus shutting the door having his elect on his heart at that time. 
as he was alone with the Father in prayer, prayed that we might have eternal life. All that the Father gave him, that we might have eternal life. And as the holy man of God thus prayed to the Lord, having shut the door upon himself and the dead child, who represents a dead sinner, let's see what the result is. Verse 34. And he, that's Elisha, went up and lay upon the child and put his mouth upon his mouth and his eyes upon his eyes and his hands upon his hands. And he stretched himself upon the child and the flesh of the child waxed warm. So you can picture perhaps him doing this right here. This posture the prophet took is physically as close as he could get to that child. He couldn't get any closer to that child than putting his face on his face and his hands on his hands and stretching himself out over him. That's as close as he can get. A hug is as close as you can get, isn't it? So he stretched himself on the child. He stretched himself upon a wretched, dead body, one that could not be healed by a mother's loving embrace, nor by a prophet's staff. And it says in the verse, in verse 34, the flesh of the child waxed warm. So the signs of death had been reversed. For we know that one of the signs a person has been dead for a while, if you've ever worked around that situation like I have many times, is that the person's flesh is cold to the touch. And there are other signs as well. So having the the flesh of the child go from being cold to waxing warm, that's a good sign, isn't it? And considering this formerly dead child representing dead sinners, listen as I read from Romans chapter 7, verses 21 through 24. Romans 7, verses 21 through 24. And I want you to think about this child's dead body. It's it's wretched, it's dead, it's Left for a while, a little decomposed, just like anyone else's. That's, that's the nature of the corruption of the flesh. Listen to what Paul said. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, that's in his flesh, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am. What's he talking about? He's talking about his flesh, isn't he? Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Isn't that good? The body of this death. And that's what we're reading about with this little child. Who shall deliver him from the body of this death? And in the text I read you from Romans 7, that word body is soma. It's a Greek word that means the physical body we live in. You have in the New Testament the body, soul, and spirit. Body is in the Greek language soma, and then the uh, soul, or the which is the mind, the will, and emotions, that's the word suke. It's P-S-Y-C-H-E. That's where we get the word psychology from or psychotic, or any other thing that is in that field. And then 
the the word for spirit, that inner man, that part that never dies whenever we put our faith in Jesus Christ, that is the pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A, which means air. That's the Holy Spirit representing the Holy Spirit in us. So body, soul, and spirit. Well, this is a body that Paul is talking about. He's talking about the body of this death. That is his flesh. And that's what wants to sin, by the way. Now, I know that, that uh, most pastors I've ever heard been been in front of and had preached to me, some of them would, boy, they'd tear you up about this sin or that sin. But you know one they didn't preach on much is gluttony because they were gluttons. <laughs> they didn't want to talk about, about that. But what does the flesh want to do when you're starving to death and you pull up to a buffet, you want to eat that whole thing, don't you? I mean, you see that and you say, boy, I'm going to, I'm going to knock a dent in that buffet. I'm going to get my money's worth. That's the flesh. Now we need to eat for sustenance. That's the way our bodies are made, but we don't need to overeat. And when we do, what do we usually do? We sit in our recliner and say, oh, I ate too much. We knew we ate too much. And that's, that's the flesh. Now, we who are no longer spiritually dead, that is the Christian, but alive, we seek to be delivered from this wretched body. We do. And we will be when Jesus takes us in death or in the rapture, when we're, we're resurrected or raptured. And in fact, we want to be delivered from this sinning flesh so badly that we groan for it. Romans chapter 8, verses 21 through 23, it refers to us as the creature, the one that is created. Romans 8, 21 through 23, Paul wrote, Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God, for we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. You know what caused that? Sin, when sin entered into the world. And not only they, but also ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. And that word body is soma, our flesh. Here's one of the major differences between a Christian and a lost person, particularly a lost person who thumbs their nose at the gospel. The Christian groans to be delivered from the body of this death. That does not mean we're in a hurry to die. I'm very thankful for the life God's given me and for the years that he has given me. And if he sees fit to let me live past today, I'm thankful for that. I'm not in a hurry to die. But I am ready to not have to put up with the flesh anymore, with sin anymore. And if you're a Christian, you are too. The lost sinner, on the other hand, the carnal man, is scared to death of death. Now, none of us say, oh, I can't wait for that moment. What I can't wait for is to be with Jesus. But the process, the physical process of getting there is not a pleasant one. As many know, 
And as those who have gone on before us would have told you, some, for some of them we witnessed that. But the lost sinner, the carnal man, is, is scared to death of death for this reason. He's not redeemed. And the life he has now is the only reward that he's going to have. It just gets worse after death. For us, it gets better. The sinner grows increasingly anxious and depressed and sometimes even bitter that his body is breaking down and that death knocks at his door a little bit louder each day. And I'm sure this dead child, when he was alive, would say he would want his life to be returned to his body if he were to suddenly die. Most people in this world would tell you they want to be delivered from hell. They just think they're good enough not to have to go there. That's what the main problem is. They think, well, I I don't think I've done anything that badly. I know of a man who, who flat out told me that. The man was trying to witness to him, and the man I know said that he told that man, well, I've never done anything bad enough to go to hell. Yeah, you have. Every one of us have. Now that the flesh of this child is waxed warm, let's see what happens. Verse 35, this is Elisha. Then he returned and walked in the house to and fro and went up and stretched himself upon him. And the child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. It says, then he returned. Now, this tells us that Elisha, after having stretched himself on the child's body the first time and the flesh waxed warm, got up, arose from the child. And we don't know exactly where he went, but the Bible tells us he left the place where the child was for a moment because he walked to and fro in the house. So when he stretched himself upon the child again, the child sneezed seven times. It's the only time in the word in the Bible the word sneezed is used. It means to scatter, which is why we use a Kleenex to catch the scatter so it doesn't splatter, right? You don't have to carry that away from the lesson if you don't want, but do remember the child sneezed seven times. Seven times is the number for divine perfection in the Bible. You first notice it as God finished his creative work. Because the Bible says, and on the seventh day he rested. And listen, that was just as much a part of his creation as the other six days, is that he rested. He ceased from his labor. And in verse 35, our text tells us not only did the child sneeze seven times, but the child opened his eyes. The warming of his flesh was a good thing, as was the sneezing. But what really tells us when someone has come to, when they've snapped out of it, when they open their eyes? I mean, we'll shout up and down the hallway, doctor, nurse, hey, he opened his eyes. And opening the eyes carries a great spiritual significance as well. What did the opened eyes signify? That the child had passed from death to life. In testifying to King Agrippa, 
in Acts chapter 26, verses 15 through 18, the Apostle Paul said these words, Acts 26, 15 through 18, And I said, Who art thou, Lord? Now Paul was testifying of when the Lord took his sight on the road to Damascus, and he said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet. For I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles, unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light." and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. All of that Jesus told Paul, and he testified of this to King Agrippa. Anytime you read about God reviving a dead person, whether it's through a prophet, through Jesus himself, or an apostle, Remember the greater lesson, because even this dead child's body brought to life will die again, and he did again die at some point. But the resurrection from the dead that is guaranteed through the gospel of Jesus Christ is a resurrection that will never be overturned. Our resurrected glorified bodies will never die again. That saved inner man, even though you're walking in lost flesh, you have a saved inner man. That's your spiritual man. It's never going to die again. Thank you, Jesus, for stretching your righteousness over me when I was dead in sin. Thank you that your eyes were open toward me when mine were closed and with your mouth you breathed spiritual life into me through the gospel covenant. That's what Jesus did. So when you see Elisha stretched out over this little boy and him coming from death to life, don't just think of it as a one of the many miracles in the Bible. It is. Think of that spiritual significance because that's what God would have us to learn is both the earthly and the spiritual. Verse 36, And he, that's Elisha, called Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her. And when she was coming unto him, he said, Take up thy son. Because the Shunammite woman was had to be called to come into the room, it tells us she had not returned to this room since she left her dead child on the bed of the holy man of God and shut the door. Now she's called to the room to see the work that she had completely given to God to see the work that's been done. Verse 37 then she went in and fell at his feet and bowed herself to the ground and took up her son and went out. Notice what she did first when she went into the room. She fell at the feet of the holy man of God. You know, she bowed herself. This was an outward act of a thankful heart. It wasn't just a thank you note or, 
hey, thanks for stopping by and taking care of that for me, but sincere gratitude because she received her dead child alive. And it's instructive to us, or it should be, that we not only seek God's face like Elisha did in prayer, like this woman did in prayer, we not only take our problems to the holy man of God, Jesus, and that we not only shut the door on those problems and totally commit them to the Lord, but also that we remember to thank God for answered prayer. The world recognizes the word thanksgiving about once a year. And for a Christian, that ought to never leave our hearts. It's to, this is just as good a day to preach on Thanksgiving as November, the fourth Thursday in November. And before she even took up her son, she thanked the Lord by falling at the feet of the holy man of God. And no words are recorded for us, just her actions. But listen to a very similar passage in Luke chapter 17. I'm going to read verses 9 through 19. Luke 17, verses 9 through 19. And it came to pass, as he, that's Jesus, went to Jerusalem, that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers, which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices, all of them. They lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go show yourselves unto the priests. And it came to pass, as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God. And he fell down on his face at his feet, at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answering said, were there not ten cleansed, but where are the nine? There are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. And he said unto him, Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. You know, these lepers had some things in common with the Shunammite woman. Number one, they were sorely afflicted. Leprosy was a death sentence. Leprosy alienated people from society because uh, they had to be separated so they wouldn't catch or they wouldn't give leprosy to those who didn't have it. And even more so, it signified the sinner who is unclean and who has to turn to the Lord for his cleansing. They were sorely afflicted. Number two, these lepers, just like the Shunammite woman, brought their hopeless case to the holy man of God, Jesus. A third thing they had in common is that Jesus healed them. But after that, only one of these lepers had anything in common with this Shunammite woman, the Samaritan. And to him, Jesus said, thy faith, have made thee whole. Yes, this leper could have gone on his way with the other nine, enjoying his newfound health and freedom. It didn't say Jesus took it back and unhealed them. He healed them. He sent all of them on their way, cleansed of the leprosy. And this Samaritan could have done the same thing. And this woman 
when she ran, ran into the room or walked into the room where her child was and his eyes were open, she could have said, okay, guys, thank you all. Now I got it from here and just taken her son up and said, oh, my son, my son. But the Samaritan man and the Shunammite woman were people of faith. So they fell at the feet of the ones who healed them. Jesus healed one himself and the other one he healed through the holy man of God, Elisha. What a story that was. And now, just as if he turned the page and went from one thing to another, Elisha's going to Gilgal. Let's look at verse 38. And Elisha came again to Gilgal. And there was a dearth in the land. And the sons of the prophets were sitting before him. And he said unto his servant, Set on the great pot and seethe pottage for the sons of the prophets. Gilgal was a place from which Elijah went with Elijah, Elisha went with Elijah to Bethel. Now, we don't say the word dearth. I think we should start, but we don't say the word dearth very much. In fact, in the Bible, it's normally translated as the word famine. And we know what a famine is, don't we? And by the way, we're not having one right now. Some people think, well, this country's in famine. We're in spiritual famine, but we have a lot of food and we have a lot to drink. So we're going to be okay physically. But we use the word famine today more than we do the word dearth. Now look at the sons of the prophets. At least this group. They haven't been much help to the people of Israel. They weren't much of an encouragement to Elisha before Elijah was taken from this earth. They said, aha, God's fixing to take your master from your head today. Elisha told him, I know it, be quiet, don't need to talk anymore. In fact, not only were these sons of the prophets not useful to the people of Israel, they could have been, but they weren't, they were harmful to them, they brought great harm to them. Remember God's promises in Leviticus 26 verses 3 through 6, as we've returned to that passage several times in our studies, and it's important too. So we can see where they went off the tracks in Israel. Leviticus 26, verses 3 through 6, God said to his people, If ye walk in my statutes, that's my laws, and keep my commandments and do them, then I will give you rain in due season, and the land shall yield her increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and your threshing shall reach unto the vintage, and the vintage shall reach unto the sowing time, and ye shall eat your bread to the full, and dwell in your land safely. And I will give peace in the land, and ye shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will rid evil beasts out of the land, neither shall the sword go through your land. Why was Israel in a dearth, a famine? Because they were not walking in the statutes and keeping the commandments of the Lord. People ask, why is our economy falling apart? Why are there killings and oppression of the poor and so forth, not only here but all over the world? It's the same reason. People are not walking in the statutes and keeping the commandments of the Lord. And yes, there are political factors at play. There always are. But the larger picture is that mankind is sinful, and it waxes worse and worse. It doesn't get better and better. 
a new president, Congress, new Supreme Court justices, and so on, will not solve the problems. They may help things temporarily, and I pray they would. But the spiritual famine in this world, in this country, is one that only Jesus can fix. When he redeems his creation back to himself, that's when you can look for things to be totally well, is when Jesus redeems his creation back to himself. Until then, we're going to do this right here, mostly going down, or as I like to say, we're in a death spiral going down the sewer as a world and as a country. That's why your faith better be in Jesus. Because if it's not, whoever or whatever you're depending on is going to fail you. The rug is going to get pulled out from under your feet soon enough, and you have no hope. Now, we've considered the big picture, the disobedience of the people, their sin. So let's zoom in now back to the sons of the prophets and their role in this. When the prophets and priests turn away from God's word, most people follow them. Did you know that? You look at most of the churches in this world today. They've got a bunch of followers, and some fella or some lady or maybe some doesn't know what he is is standing up front and telling people what they want to hear. And they say, oh, he's so good. He's such a good pastor. They don't have any idea what a good pastor is because they don't know their Bibles. But although the majority of people follow them, the remnant do not. The remnant is faithful to God's word. The remnant rejects false teachers. And the remnant will accept imprisonment, torture, or death. Not what I mean we like it. But we'll accept it rather than believing heresy, rather than agreeing to heresy. And as we close here at the end of verse 38, he said, Elisha said to these sons of the prophets, set on the great pot and seethe pottage for the sons of the prophets. Let me read you another translation. Put on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. In my house, we'd say, get the big stew pot out. Watch what Elisha does here. In fact, we're, next week we'll come back and look at this great object lesson that he's going to teach and that the sons of the prophets should never forget. We're out of time, so let's be dismissed in prayer. Father, thank you for the good attention of those who came to study and learn your word today. Thank you for our online members and visitors who have or will tune in to learn from this precious text, this passage that's enlightened us and enriched us this morning. And as we continue into the next hour and sing praises to your name and listen again to the teaching of your word, I pray you would find it pleasing to you, Lord, that we'd be led by the Spirit and not by the flesh, and that all things would be done to lift up the name of your Son, Jesus, and the powerful word of God.